September 3rd, 2022 was an historic date for British wrestling fans. For the first time in almost 20 years, the WWE was promoting a pay-per-view-sized event in the United Kingdom. And for the first time in 30 years, it was a stadium show, taking place at the Principality Stadium in the capital of Wales, Cardiff City. Your intrepid host was in attendance at this landmark event, and one month on, I thought I'd give you my extended thoughts on not just the event, but what it meant from a point of significance, I suppose. Hello, and welcome to Ruthless Aggression Relived. My name's LT Fletcher, and this is the first bonus episode on the main podcast feed for the show. We are leaping forward in time on our timeline some 20 years as we take a brief jaunt from 2002 to 2022 for a look at WWE's first premium live event, as they now call them, to be produced in Britain since Insurrection 2003, and the first WWE supercard to be produced since Vince McMahon stepped down as CEO and Head of Creative. The CEO role will be passed jointly to Nick Khan and Vince's daughter Stephanie, and Triple H would step into the Head of Creative role. Ultimately, the truth is, a lot of the legwork had been done on the road towards this event, so I don't particularly class this as the first show of the Triple H era, or whatever we end up calling this period. Nevertheless, there was undoubtedly a different feel to this show, and that felt intentional to me. Britain has long been starved for wrestling. This is thanks in no small part to WWE themselves. In the early 90s, British wrestling fans were largely pivoting away from the old-school British style in favour of the exciting product the World Wrestling Federation were promoting, and home country hero British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith being on WWF programming didn't exactly stall this. Not that the WWF could help changing tastes, it wasn't as if they could be expected to promote a less interesting show, but the modern-day WWE all but wiping out the British wrestling scene in favour of NXT UK certainly didn't help. This event was the least they could do as a make-right, and the cynics among us might say it's still not enough. As soon as the show was announced, I was determined I would be in attendance for it. I haven't attended a live wrestling show in over a decade, and I wasn't too happy about that. I needed to break that chain, and this seemed like the place to do it. I would have loved dearly to have been able to attend the show with my dad who first introduced me to wrestling and the company that would become WWE all those years ago. Sadly that isn't an option in 2022, so I did the next best thing and brought him along in spirit, proudly wearing his old Batista shirt. I did, however, get to bring another family member with me. My mum had never been to a wrestling show before, but she probably watches more of the current WWE product than I do. She's mainly interested in Smackdown though. Well, actually, that's a half-truth. She's mainly interested in Roman Reigns. As soon as she learned he'd be in the main event of the evening, she was down. 
Our tickets were £100 each via the stadium website, as Ticketmaster's prices ranged from astronomical to insulting. I can only hope anyone who paid for the multiple thousand-pound VIP packages got their money's worth. I'm afraid they were a little rich for my taste. Cardiff is a long old drive from Chesterfield, especially with a pretty bad traffic situation on the way down. I like to arrive at a venue, not on time, but early. This was very nearly not an option. Suffice to say, parking was not the best in Cardiff. In an ideal world, we probably should have come down the night before, but hotels in the capital city aren't exactly what you might call cheap, so we tried our luck with a day of show journey. I have to be honest, despite an enlarged media presence surrounding the event and the city itself being decorated with WWE banners, it felt like very little preparation had been done to ready the city for the attending WWE fans. The nearby train station car park had been cordoned off to those attending the show, but in fairness, that's pretty reasonable as it had been a bit crap to be forced to miss your train thanks to wrestling fans filling up the car park. In the end, we parked in the underground car park of the nearby John Lewis department store, and were forced to walk the rest of the way. Thank goodness for the terrifying entity we know as Google and their wonderful maps. Now, I'm six foot two, maybe six foot three if I stand up straight. My mum is a foot shorter than I am, so unfortunately, we could only walk at her pace. That's not to say the walk was an entirely bad one. A street team was on hand giving out freebies to anyone they spotted in a wrestling shirt, meaning we were given the 2022 WWE sticker album, the first one since Panini were given the license from Tops. It's a lovely little album, honestly, and I'm looking forward to throwing away money on it like a big dumb mark. Eventually, we got to the stadium, and all credit to the staff, we were in in no time. Event programs were selling out fast, and we were forced to skip past the merchandise stands for the time being, prioritising getting some food downers. You can't beat a good arena or stadium hot dog. Now, I don't know if anyone from the Principality Stadium will hear this, but man, those are premier hot dogs. Having worked out there'd be a pre-show, I was somewhat calmed at the realisation we wouldn't be late to the show after all. As it happens, we managed to get into our seats just in time for the kickoff match, which was some perfect timing. And considering I thought the seats would be pretty naff for £100 apiece, they were surprisingly good with us being sat about halfway up the stadium. As for the matches themselves, I'm not going to go too in-depth on them like I would for a usual match report on a normal Ruthless Aggression Relived episode. I wanted to keep this one very much about the feelings and emotions I had of the evening, rather than breaking things down in too much detail. I also haven't yet rewatched the show on the WWE Network, so as not to sway my opinions on anything. So if there are any lines of note on commentary, I can only apologise that I won't have heard them. The kickoff match was Madcap Moss and the Street Profits taking on Austin Theory and Alpha Academy. Now, I'm not entirely sold on Moss, and I think he needs a retooling of his character to be really much to write home about. He does have a decent enough personality, but I think the madcap stuff has run its course. The Street Profits used to irk me, but I like them enough, and they're very good in the ring. Austin Theory... is not on my favourites list, but it's perhaps best I don't get into that. I will say, in a post-Vince world, I do love how much the WWE is now embracing the fact that the fans legitimately hate Theory, and have used elements of that in their storytelling. And as for the Alpha Academy, well, they're just bloody great, aren't they? This was a pretty decent warm-up match, and it got the crowd into the show. Oh, and what a crowd, too. They were hot all night. I've been to a lot of wrestling shows, and this was definitely the best audience I've 
ever been a part of. At 6 minutes and 29 seconds, this was the shortest match of the night, but that's to be expected for the kickoff match. It was also the only one that had a minutes count in single figures, which was a good sign. As we headed towards the show, I'd speculated that a three-hour event with only six matches announced seemed a little slim, a feeling which had been echoed online. I didn't realise at the time we'd be seeing Triple H's booking philosophies in action. Instead of them adding lots of small matches and segments to fill time, those six matches were the only ones we had all evening, not including the kickoff, of course. But Hunter and his road agents ensured all of them were given time to breathe. Fewer, longer matches on supercards that don't feel like they last a thousand years? Yes, please. The first match of the event proper was a six-woman tag team match pitting damage control against Bianca Belair, Alexa Bliss and Asuka. Alexa was very much the odd one out here, and it seems pretty obvious to me that that spot in the match would have been filled by Becky Lynch had the man not been out on injury. It was lovely to see each of these women live, including uh, New Legacy Inc. Big Dog Dakota Kai. The crowd were into all six of them as well, but honestly, with no Becky, the star of this one was Asuka. The difference in volume for entrance pop was palpable. All six of these women are stars, but Asuka is a megastar. I've long been of the opinion that she's the secret MVP of the WWE, a most valuable player, not Montel Vontavious Porter, that's someone else. I think the fans in Cardiff shared that view. I'm going to be totally honest, I actually got emotional as Asuka made her way to the ring, and I'm not ashamed to admit, I did a wee little cry of joy. To see one of my favourite wrestlers in person for the first time was truly special. The fact she received such a hero's welcome made it all the better. I know the roof would have blown off for big-time Bex, but it was so lovely to see the Empress given such a loving reception. The fans were not in the mood to boo Bailey either, and revived the old Hey Bailey chant, with her clearly calling an audible at multiple points and tagging out of the match so we'd stop chanting for her. The best way to be a heel? Figure out what the fans want from you, then refuse to give it to them. Bailey is so good, and might be the best character the women's division have right now. Io Sky and Dakota were arguably the stars of the match and worked together beautifully. Tag team wrestling is a very difficult art, especially in WWE, where it's not always treated very well. But knowing Triple H is fond of the women of Damage Control gives me hope we'll get to see lots more of the amazing chemistry and synergy the trio have with one another. The one downside to watching a match live is if you're in a certain spot, you can see wrestlers preparing for surprise spots hiding on the outside, as was the case when it appeared Asuka had simply died out of view of the camera. Ultimately, the baddies picked up the win in 1844, but more importantly, Asuka had not died, because that would have spoiled my evening. Next up was a contest for the Intercontinental Championship, pitting defending champion Gunther against challenger Sheamus. It very quickly dawned on me what kind of match this would be. I told my mum this would be the big lads smacking the shit out of one another match. I was right. The big explosive fight to the back in the opening moments between Imperium and the brawling brutes as their leaders stood stock still, staring at one another down, was recycled, admittedly, but still extremely cool to watch in action. And then, lo, it came to pass. These big lads smacked the shit out of one another. And it was awesome. 
As the match went on, my mum had an epiphany, a door unlocking in her mind as she saw the bruises Seamus and Gunther were leaving on one another. She turned to me and said, I thought wrestlers didn't hit one another for real. Oh, those lads were hitting one another. No question. And honestly, I bet they were loving it. Seamus and Gunther are great wrestlers, but they may be beyond comparison in WWE when it comes to brawling. I don't usually care for matches that depend largely on the wrestlers simply hitting one another, but fuck me if this wasn't incredible. Despite being from the Republic of Ireland, Seamus was given a welcome we'd have reserved for any British wrestler. The fans loved him and wanted to see him pull off the win. Alas, it was not to be, and Gunther retained at 1933, and perhaps the only result on the card I would have changed. Seamus was still a hero to those of us in attendance, however. Liv Morgan defended her SmackDown Women's Championship against Shayna Baszler next, in a contest that unfortunately felt like a popcorn match. It was definitely a cool-down match, if nothing else. Certainly in our block, the people around me started talking among themselves rather than paying attention to what was going on in the ring, and I felt really awful for Liv and Shayna as the crowd were noticeably quieter for them. The thing is, I wonder if the crowd had just figured it out... Because in a realistic world, Shayna would tear Liv limb from limb. So, of course, Liv was bound to retain as the plucky babyface. And retain she did at 11.02. Now that's great for Liv, as it shows off her babyface fire and spirit. Though unfortunately, it makes Shayna look a wimp. As in terms of character, Liv is, and I say this knowing she could still pummel me with no effort, the girliest girl on the WWE payroll. But it's a catch-22, as if Shayna had killed Liv, well, how would that have been an impressive win over the girliest girl? It feels to me like Liv's character is going to cause problems for booking, and it feels even more to me that Shayna needs a serious push to get her back on track after this kind of derailment over the course of the last several years. Up next was a contest that seemed designed to make me emotional, and you know what? It did. On the very first wrestling show I ever attended in October of 2002 at the Sheffield Arena, I was treated to a match featuring two-thirds of the legendary SmackDown 6 as Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle teamed up to face Edge and Rey Mysterio. And now, almost 20 years later, Edge and Rey had reunited to face Finn Balor and Damian Priest of the Judgment Day, and feelings of nostalgia came flooding back to me. Edge was given the most amazing reaction of the night. In all my years as a wrestling fan, I can't remember a crowd ever singing along to his Metalingus theme song. Cardiff was determined to change this. I can only imagine how Edge must have felt as thousands upon thousands of people serenaded him to the ring to one of the absolute greatest theme tunes of all time. As a huge fan of the Ruthless Aggression era, who'd have guessed that, eh? And someone who was in attendance for Edge's retirement tour in 2011, this match carried huge emotional significance for me as a fan. Not only do I think Edge belongs in the discussion for a top 10 all-time talent, I believe the SmackDown 6 represented one of the most genius concepts ever applied to wrestling booking, and Paul Heyman's SmackDown those two decades ago is, in my opinion, the greatest stretch of pure wrestling-oriented television WWE has ever managed to produce. Seeing Edge not only out of retirement, but moving just as smooth and as quickly as he did in his youth, made me cry with emotion for a second time. 
And I'm not going to lie. Seeing him do the 619 absolutely delighted my heart. I had an absolute blast with this match. And also, Rhea Ripley was there, and she activates neurons in the brains. The match ended at 12.35, but the big twist afterwards was... Well, I mean, actually, no, it wasn't a big twist, was it? I mean, did you not see his mullet? Did you not see the facial hair? Dominic Mysterio turning on his dad, Ray, and Edge, was hardly a surprise when he was so obviously channeling the late, great, incomparable Eddie Guerrero, who, need I remind you, in WWE kayfabe, is Dominic's biological father. The Judgment Day laughing themselves silly at this moment provided us with what I immediately knew would become one of the best wrestling reaction gifts in a long time, and sure enough, it's enjoying a good run in that role right now. Good fun match, and absolutely amazing for me on a personal level. Up next was Seth motherfucking Rollins taking on Matt Riddle in a match that Seth had done a blinding job in promoting. The fans in Cardiff didn't hate Riddle, though I freely admit I just don't get him. But those fans were not about to boo Seth. There are three possible reasons for this that I think could plausibly account for why that is. Number one, Seth is consistently the best wrestler in WWE in this day and age. Number two, Seth is married to Becky Lynch, which means all the cheers we were saving up for her were going to be given to her husband instead. Number three, Seth is one of the funniest and most entertaining characters in all of wrestling. And if I can tell you one thing about British wrestling fans, it's that we love to laugh. Riddle's character doesn't even come close to being as good as Seth's. Unlike Bailey ignoring our adoration, Seth couldn't even begin to pretend he could do the same for the deafening cheers and chants he was getting. So he didn't. In fact, he conducted us in our chanting at one point. And honestly, I don't know if he and Riddle are cool now, but I'm pretty damn sure that after their real-life disagreement, this had to feel good for Seth. The lady behind us wanted to know whether I was a fan of Seth or Riddle. I told her I couldn't cheer for a man who doesn't wear shoes to the ring. She agreed, saying Riddle looked like he was wearing a nappy. She and her friends continued to shout abuse at Nappy Man for the rest of the match. Excellent. Seth worked an outstanding match with Riddle and put him away in 1722, meaning not only had he made Riddle look like a complete prick throughout the entire feud, before being extremely giving in the ring, but he'd even won the damn feud. What a guy. Before we get into the main event, I want to talk about the vignettes we saw. The fans in attendance couldn't hear the backstage pre-tapes, though fortunately there were only two, and neither seemed particularly interesting, as English boxer Tyson Fury interacted with the participants in the main event. I don't mind not hearing the vignettes if they look particularly dull, which these certainly did. We saw a recap of British Bulldog facing Bret Hart from SummerSlam 1992, which was lovely to see. The fans were genuinely delighted when it was revealed Brett was sat in the front row of the audience, and so too were Davy Boy's family. We also got a vignette hyping up Cody Rhodes and recapping his return and subsequent injury. Cody is absolutely a hero, and I can't wait for him to come back. Speaking of heroes, one of the loudest pops of the night was for Becky's vignette. I adore Becky Lynch, I don't care who knows it, I think she's an inspirational human being, and easily one of the greatest pro wrestlers of today. I think you can make a very real case for her being the best female wrestler in WWE history. 
And I expect a lot of you are going to take to Twitter and shout at me and tell me why I'm wrong. But I don't care, so there we go. So then, the main event that had been booked months in advance, pitting Roman Reigns against Drew McIntyre. Now I knew one thing for certain. If Drew entered to Broken Dreams, his original theme song, he was winning that belt. And then, Broken Dreams played. The arena joined in song in another beautiful moment. And Drew didn't come out. Well, he did, but he came out to his current theme song. And I knew in that moment, Roman Reigns was retaining the WWE Universal Championship. I have a complicated relationship with Drew McIntyre. Those of you who've known me for a long time will know I didn't like Drew's original run with WWE. His character was bland and uninteresting, and it was more fun to dunk on him for things like his delivery of the line, Kelly, I've changed my ways, during a a baffling storyline where he was wooing Kelly Kelly. Plus, it's worth noting, I hate the Future Shock DDT. It's awful. Just a crap finishing move. But then, towards the end of that run, it's like the company almost got him. He'd have moments on pay-per-view where he'd put in amazing shows of violence and brutality that would force me to sit up and take notice of him. And then he'd be back to being given bland crap each week. Oh, and he shared a segment with John Morrison which is one of the most embarrassing, cringeworthy things Morrison has ever done. My relationship with Morrison is much less complicated, thank you very much. So Drew went away, toured the world, and got really ridiculously fucking good. He is almost unrecognisable as that skinny wanker from 2007, and now looks every bit the superstar. Good on you, Drew. I have a reasonably complicated relationship with Roman Reigns too, as I could not be arseholed with him when he was a babyface. But Roman is unique. He's the only certifiable top guy WWE has ever produced that has held that role for a lengthy period as a heel. And damn, he is a good heel. Despite the protestations of my mum and the lady behind us, I was with the vastest majority of the audience for this one cheering for Drew. I mean, you know, I'd already decided he wasn't going over. I mean, the least I could do was make him feel better about it. But you know what? Between the false finishes, the excitement of the match, and the intensity of both men, not to mention the occasion itself and the enormity of being at a show like this, I, a cynical wrestling fan of almost 25 years, managed to do something that's Almost impossible. I got swept up in the show. I forgot about things like booking logic. I forgot about how Drew would probably lose. I just cheered. I was completely swept up in support for the hero of the story. I marked out. And it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had at a wrestling event. I wish it could happen more often. Damn you, Drew, I even cheered the Future Shock DDT. Karrion Cross, who I will admit doesn't click for me as a fan, was a non-entity, but he wasn't the only surprise in the match. Now, I've not been keeping up with NXT, so Solo Sikoa's arrival confused the hell out of me, but in hindsight, that's a cool moment, and it's a fun way to introduce Solo to the main roster. 
During the double down when Austin Theory's music hit, I have never heard an angrier crowd than the one we heard in that moment. Theory may well have feared for his life. We did not want him anywhere near that match, let alone cashing in his money in the bank contract. So good on Tyson Fury for laying the prick out. In the end, Drew didn't win, but he looked like a fucking hero to his UK fans. Of which I now include myself. If you told me during the later stages of the Ruthless Aggression era that one day I would give Drew McIntyre an ovation, I'd have scoffed. But he earned it. I don't understand the people who were genuinely angry Drew didn't win the match. Even if he'd come out to Broken Dreams and lost, I couldn't be mad. Roman will get his comeuppance, and it'll likely be at the hands of Cody Rhodes. And that's fine. The post-match shenanigans with Drew and Fury were a little silly, but I figured it was fun house show nonsense to send the fans home happy. Except somebody forgot to cut the feed so the whole world saw it. And now Drew is ruined! If you told me during the later stages of the Ruthless Aggression era that one day Drew McIntyre would be made to look a tit in front of the world, I'd have laughed. After the show finished and the wrestlers had all left, a fan tried to get in the ring. Security were not having his shit at all and hurled the prick back over the barricade. Lol. We managed to get a program for £15? And I'll admit I was a touch disappointed as the quality of the program has sadly lessened since the last show I attended. Yes... The program had more pages and lovely high-definition photos, but all the biographies were gone, meaning the photos are basically all the book had. Still, it's a lovely keepsake of the event, if nothing else. I also managed to get an Undertaker shirt for his live show, which proclaims on the back, I was there. I was not there. Speaking of Undertaker, his absence was one I thought was strange. I didn't expect him to wrestle. I mean, as a fan of the dead man, I don't want him to wrestle, as I'd rather he be healthy in retirement. But I thought an appearance for the UK fans might have been nice. You never know, depending on how schedules line up, he may not get another chance. Triple H was similarly conspicuous by his absence, as I really thought he'd welcome us to the show. The fact neither of the two of them made an appearance in hindsight, seems intentional to me. Them not being on the show marks a clear separation from the old and the new. And as a fan of his work, I do feel a little pride in Triple H for recognising that was the correct move. I felt it was a good sign. He'd given me a show I'd enjoyed from top to bottom, one that I'd screamed so loud and so long at, I thought I was going to die of an aneurysm as my brain seemed to yell back. Getting out of that car park was sheer hell. Traffic was gridlocked, and we couldn't even reverse out of our parking space for over 40 minutes. Between traffic and me needing to stop for a sleep due to exhaustion, we didn't get home until 5am. But I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Clash at the Castle was a damn good show one of the most amazing moments of my near quarter-century time as a wrestling fan. Bring on the next one, WWE, because I'll be there for that one too. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I know the diary format is extremely unusual for our podcast, but I really want to record my thoughts for posterity. What did you think of this episode? And hey, were you in attendance at Clash at the Castle? 
What did you make of the matches? Whether you watched it in person or whether you watched it on the network, what did you think? I'd love to hear from you guys, and don't forget you can contact the show on Twitter at RAWelived, or me directly at LTDangerous. Or if you have longer thoughts that you can't sum up in 240 characters, you can drop us an email via LTRuthlessAggression at gmail.com. Until next time, as we hop back 20 years, back to 2002, I've been LT Fletcher. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.